What a privilege it is this morning to be gathered with you, to hear from the word of the Lord, to sing praises to our King. Let's take a moment before we go into our time in the word. Let's take a moment in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, by your power. Send your spirit to speak to us and transform us today just a little bit more into the image of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So my task this morning is to share with you from Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. But by way of introduction, let me tell you about the book of Ephesians for just a moment. What we call the book of Ephesians is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church in the ancient Roman Empire 2,000 years ago or so. Don't check my math too closely. If you look at the book of Acts, it records that Paul took three major missionary journeys over the course of his time of ministry. And on his third journey, right at the beginning, he visited the city of Ephesus, which is located in what would one day be known as the country of Turkey. After spending his first three months there, reasoning with the Ephesian Jews in their synagogue, once they rejected the message of the gospel, he withdrew from them to a Gentile setting where we read in Acts chapter 19 that he reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And he spent approximately two years in that city, longer than any other city in any of his missionary journeys. Many years later, from approximately 60 to 62 A.D., Paul found himself under house arrest in Rome. Unable to visit the church in Ephesus, he heard that the work of God, that their faith in Christ, that their love for one another continued to grow. Concerned for them, he wrote this letter to the Ephesian believers. He wrote several letters from prison. Ephesians is just one of them. He wrote many letters, in fact, over the course of his missionary journeys to many churches... All of his writings are letters that we have in the New Testament. And if we were to compare Ephesians to Paul's other letters, we would find that this letter to Ephesus is missing many of the personal references and greetings that Paul includes in his other letters. Therefore, as we read and study this letter, we will see that it reads very much like a general letter with no specific audience. Ephesians was not necessarily written to any one congregation. But as it said that while he was in Ephesus, the word of the Lord spread through all of that Roman province, all of Asia. So we can read this letter as being written to many congregations. And I would argue that if this letter has been written to many different congregations, if it was written to many churches, then it was also written to this church. And it was also written to Fieldstone Church. And it was written to any church where the name of Jesus Christ is named and the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and believed. As such, it's a letter to the church of Jesus Christ. It's a letter to you, and it's a letter that is written to me. Therefore, as we pivot here, and we specifically consider the portion of Paul's letter in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, when we read the words, you and yours... While we know that the letter was not directly written to us, still it is written to us. 
It's a letter from Paul to the ancient Asian churches. It's a letter from Paul to us today. It's a letter from the Holy Spirit to the people of God. We are not wrong to insert ourselves here as the audience of Paul's letter. Yet we should further define who exactly it is that Paul was writing to. If you look back at chapter 1 in verses 1, and in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It is written to Christians. It's written to believe people who have believed the gospel and put their faith in Christ. Further, it is written to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It is written to those whose authentic faith has been proven by the reality of a new life. The same holds true for us today. I would say that one of the greatest dangers in our American society is to assume that we are members of God's people when in fact we are not. The danger is amplified here in a respectable church gathered with respectable people where we sit and sing and talk and greet one another in the name of Jesus. It would be a mistake to assume and just assume with no evidence that we are all members of the people of God. Who is a member of God's people and how do we know? How can we examine ourselves to see if we are in the, we are in the faith? Who are the true members of the people of God as Paul describes them here at the beginning of Ephesians? And as we will see in a moment, he's going to describe them again at the beginning of his prayer. Who are these people? Who are we? Paul describes them as those who are faithful in Christ. Further, as we, see, we will see in a moment, as we discover Paul's prayer, we will see that these are people that know God. As we look together at this passage, there will be ample opportunity for us to reflect together and ask ourselves, are we really members of the people of God? Are we really Christians? Are we really faithful believers in Christ? There will be opportunity for us to reflect on the condition of our hearts and lives. If you fail this test... If you find that you are not God's people, then most of this message is not for you. It would be wrong for you to insert your name into the us and ours. This message is primarily for God's people. And over the course of this, if you find that you are not, you are not without hope. I will share a message with you at the end, especially for the unbelievers and outsiders who are gathered with us today. Brian read the passage for us, but I would like to read it again, if you don't mind, to remind us of what the text says. Starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
A quick glance will give us the general idea of what Paul is talking about. Notice the words beginning in verse 17. He uses words like, words like wisdom, revelation, knowledge. And in verse 18, he uses words like enlightened and that you may know. Have you ever had a light bulb moment? When things suddenly become clear. A light bulb moment is a turning point in our thinking. It's a change in how we understand things. Why do we call them light bulb moments? Because like when a light turns on, suddenly we can see. We suddenly see things become clear. They fall into place. And what we see changes things. And maybe what we see changes everything. Paul is asking for a light bulb moment. One of those so-called 50-cent words, you've heard of those, those big vocabulary words, for a light bulb moment, is found right in this text. In verse 18, the word enlightened. To enlighten means to provide someone with information and understanding, to explain the true facts about something to someone. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Our text today contains a prayer, and in that prayer, Paul is asking for knowledge and enlightenment. He is asking for the Ephesian believers. He's asking for a big light bulb moment. Then again, he's not just asking for a light bulb moment. He's asking that the lights might turn on and stay on. And by the light of what he is going to pray for them, that their lives would be transformed. Paul wants the light of the knowledge of God in Christ to shine into their hearts and minds and for the power of that light to transform them, to make all things new. Out of all of the things which Paul could possibly have prayed, he prays for the Spirit to give us knowledge about God. There's a lot of things we could pray for. Why does he pray that we might have knowledge about God? Because to know God is our single greatest need. And therefore, it should also be our first priority in prayer. That's our main point this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember that. To know God is our single greatest need. The remainder of our message today will be organized into three sections. The cause for Paul's prayer, the content of Paul's prayer, and a contemplation on God's power. So first of all, the cause of his prayer. Notice that verse 15 begins with, for this reason, and the word because. With these words, Paul is linking the content of his prayer here at the end of the chapter with the blessing of God that he gave at the beginning of the chapter. This means that there's a connection between the ideas in his prayer and the ideas at the beginning of the chapter. Therefore, we should undertake a very brief review so that we have the ideas in our mind as we consider this prayer. There are three main themes that Paul presented in that first section in verses 3 through 14. The first is that salvation is entirely God's work according to God's plan and according to God's perfect timetable. You find that in verses 4, 5, 8, 9, 10, 11, virtually every verse in that section says something about God's sovereign plan and salvation. He is saying that God is sovereign over our salvation. And by sovereign, we mean that God is in control of everything. He rules over everything. Nothing and nobody is outside of his control. He is God. 
R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He said, if there is one maverick molecule in all of the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. When we say that God is sovereign, we are simply saying that he's God. And the sovereignty of God and salvation means exactly what these verses say, starting in verse 4. We can skim through. In verse 4, he says, he chose us before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, he says, he predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. In verses 8 through 11, in all wisdom and insight, according to the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth as a, as a plan for the fullness of times, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. God is both omniscient and omnipotent, and this passage is simply saturated with it. If you read the passage and it sounds repetitive, it's because it is. Paul is saying the same thing over and over again in different ways. He wants us to see something. He wants us to know something. He wants us to understand something. Half of these verses say something about his sovereignty. God chose us before we were born, each of us, each of you, individually. And that is why we choose him. We love him because he first loved us. The second theme in the first 14 verses is that God's sovereign plan of salvation is for the praise of his own glory. You'll find that in verses 6, 12, and 14. But we should also notice that this work of salvation, while certainly for his glory, is also for our great good. What do we see in verse 4? We read that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. He has saved us because he loves us. There is no contradiction between the expression of his love and his glory... Because the expression of his love is the premier way in which he gets glory. God gets glory by loving us. His love is his glory. So the first two themes are that salvation is God's work for God's glory and our good. And the third thing that we must keep in mind as we turn to this text is that all of this, God's plan of salvation for God's glory is through Christ. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, 11, virtually every verse in 3 through 14 says in Christ, in Christ, in him, through Christ. Even the wonderful gift of the promised Holy Spirit, which he mentions in verse 13, and which he prays for in our prayer this morning, comes to us through Christ. The entire work of salvation, from the time at the beginning until the time to the end, from before we chose to follow Christ until after we see him in glory, all of the goodness that he does in between, all of the good that God does for us in Christ is entirely by the work and the will and the power of God for his glory. So in summary, in verses 3 through 14, Paul has been explaining that God's sovereignty, especially in our salvation, is the foundation of God's grace and love. He's been explaining that God's sovereign love is the reason that his blessings come to his people. And as Paul has reflected on these things, and as we have just reflected on these things, Paul finds some things to pray for. And that brings us to the content of his prayer. When he says, for this reason, he is saying because God is sovereign in salvation, because the new life of God is at work in the Ephesians. 
And so he prays that God's sovereign, holy purposes and the salvation of his people would be fully accomplished. He is praying that God would further do what God has already done. And that's what we find in verses 17 through 19. Do we remember why Daniel prayed at the end of the Jewish exile, after they had been in exile for 70 years? Why did he pray that God would bring the exile to a close? Do we remember? Because he read in the prophets that God was going to do it. And so he started to pray that God would do it. And don't we all pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus? And why do we find strength and courage to pray that prayer? Because we know that he's coming quickly. He has promised to do just that. And Paul is saying here that it is because God has chosen us in Christ, it is because in love he has predestined us to be adopted as sons, it is because God has lavished the riches of his grace upon us, it is for this reason that Paul prays for God to give us the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. He's asking for these things because God has already done what is necessary for us to receive them. He's asking for these things because he knows that God will do what he has promised to do. This is what Paul means when he says, for this reason, I keep asking. These reasons frame out Paul's prayer. He is asking that God, who has evidently begun a good work in the Ephesian church because of their faith and their love, that he would be faithful to complete it. He is asking that just as they have begun to learn the ways of God in Christ, that they would continue to learn the ways of God in Christ. He finds boldness to ask because God is already giving and has already given what he is asking for. And let me ask you, friends, family, brothers and sisters, isn't that always how prayer works? Doesn't God know what we need before we ask him? Isn't he already meeting our needs before we ask him? We don't necessarily pray to get things from God or to try to change his mind about things. We pray that he will teach us further what he has already done. And that's the main thing we gain from prayer is insight into what God has already done and what he is already doing for us. We pray to remind ourselves of who God is and to remind ourselves of his great, his exceedingly great promises. And we'll see that this is exactly what Paul prays for. In verse 16, we see that he begins his prayer with thanks to God. Why is he thankful? Verse 15 tells us he's thankful because he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. He's thankful because he knows that apart from God's powerful, transformative work, these people would never have had any faith in Jesus. He thanks God because God is the one that has done the work that is producing fruit in their lives. Wherever we find evidence of real Christian faith, we find an occasion to praise and thank God because he is the author of that faith. I know we don't normally talk in these categories, so let me tell you a story and ask you a question. Over the past few decades, many Muslims, it's well recorded, many Muslims in Arabic-speaking countries have been coming to faith in Christ. So how do we respond to this? Do we get a hold of them and congratulate them for making a very good choice? Maybe. Probably not. 
Do we call the mission agencies that have worked so tirelessly for the hundreds of years before that, saying, great work, you're finally getting some converts? No, but I do hope that we would send them some money so that they can continue the work. Almost intuitively, we know that we should be thanking God. Because it is God who's opened blind eyes and has raised the dead. Isn't that why we pray for the salvation of our friends and family members? Because God must do a work. And then if God does that work, we must thank God for doing that work. And this is what Paul is doing at the beginning of his prayer. When he hears about their faith and love, he immediately thanks God, whose grace has sovereignly intervened in the lives of these Ephesians. And so here's a point by way of rhetorical questions. Do we pray for the salvation of souls? When was the last time that we offered thanksgiving to God for saving souls? Is it possible for us to hear of a person coming to faith in Christ without giving thanks to God? After the thanksgiving, Paul makes requests on behalf of the Ephesians. So we get to the meat and potatoes of his prayer. Paul may not have known it then. But today we can also learn what kinds of things we should pray for. Let's learn what kinds of things that we should pray for. So what does he ask for? Of all the things that Paul might have prayed for them, this is at the top of his list. This is this first priority. Verse 17, that God the glorious Father might give the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. This means that he's asking for the Holy Spirit to give them greater knowledge of God. He wants the Ephesians to know God. Again, this is our main point this morning. To know God is our single greatest need. And therefore, it should be our first priority in prayer. Do we think that we know God well enough? Do you know God well enough? At what point will we know him well enough? No, right? Rather, the more we know of him, the more that we want to know about him. Our minds are finite. His mind is infinite. We will never reach the end of knowing him. And the good news is that God desires to be known. And he has given us his spirit, the spirit of revelation and of knowledge in him. So that we can know him, so that we can become like him. And our lives will be marked by a newness of life. Our lives will be marked by his life. This is why Paul doesn't merely pray that God would teach us something about God. If it was all about head knowledge, he might have said, I pray that you might know God better. But what he prays is that God would give us his spirit. What is required for the revelation and the knowledge that we need is that the spirit of God is in us. We cannot know God in any other way. We can know things about him, but we can't know him. By stating it this way, I don't mean to separate the two, like there's a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. But I want, what I want us to realize is that what we need is more of God himself. To reveal more of himself and his ways to us. We need a deep experiential knowledge of God. That's what he means when he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. God must walk with us and in us so that we might know him. And this isn't really that mysterious, is it? Isn't this true in all of our relationships? I have a wife. I've been married to my beautiful wife for 22 years, right? Yeah. And 
in those 22 years, I've learned a lot of things about my wife. I can tell you things about my wife. But is that the same as knowing her? No, I've gotten to know her over the past 22 years. Because I've lived with her. And she's lived with me. And this is the same relationship that we're talking about with God. We need him to live with us and in us and through us. So that we might know him fully. If we want to grow in the knowledge of God, we must ask. If you want to grow in the knowledge of God, you must ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal him to you. Not just in our heads, but in our hearts. So that we might know him by experience. So beginning in the second part of verse 18, Paul fills out the rest of his prayer with three specific things that he thinks we need to know. And I'll tell you, if Paul thinks we need to know them, we probably need to know them. And he categorizes these three things as the hope, the riches, and the power. Verse 18, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is this hope to which he has called us? This has reference to eternity. This has reference to the end of all things. Part of what we hope is that this world is not our home. Part of what we hope is that by faith, through the grace of Jesus Christ, we will be with him forever. Didn't he just talk about this in verses 3 through 14? He said that he has chosen us to be holy and blameless before him in love. That is our hope. One day we will be holy and blameless before him in love. You know, in our generation in our society we don't think much about tomorrow and we don't think much about eternity but what Paul is saying is you need to know that this world is not your home this is not the end this is why Jesus teaches things like don't lay up treasures on earth but lay up treasures in heaven if we understood, if we really knew not just in our heads but in our hearts that this is not our home it would completely transform the way that we live. We would be more concerned about heaven than about earth. The second blessing that Paul wants us to grasp is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is a strange phrase. He words it strangely. And so I want us to think about what does he mean? He says this, the riches of his, meaning God's glorious inheritance in the saints. What he means, try to wrap your heads around this. What he means is that we who believe in Christ are God's inheritance. We are his prized possession. We are the apple of his eye. What we need to know is who we are in Christ. What we need to know is that God sees us as supremely valuable in Christ. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ because we have been chosen in Christ. And our destiny is to be joint heirs with him. To be exalted with him. To sit on his throne with him. To inherit everything with him. We need to know just who we are. Can there be a greater motivation or a higher incentive to live in the light of the gospel than the fact that we are God's people? We are his glory. We are his praise. 
We need to realize that we are the prized possession of the God of glory. Finally, Paul wants us to know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul was not satisfied, and we should not be satisfied with a Christianity that is full of lofty theories and high ideals, but is powerless to change our lives. When he talks about power, he's talking about power for newness of life. He's talking about God's power. And because it's God's power, not ours, we have to ask for it. We must ask that we might experience this power in our lives, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. And now something strange happens in our text for today. Here at the end of verse 19, the contents of Paul's prayer technically end. But because this isn't actually his prayer, but it's a letter where he's writing about his prayer, he seamlessly transitions from his prayer to talk about God's power a little bit more. Paul wants us to understand exactly what kind of power he's talking about. If you were asked to describe God's power, how would you do it? Think for a moment. I got to admit, I'd, I'd be tempted to look at creation. I marvel at the stars, billions of times larger than the earth, the expanses of heaven. I marvel at the human body. Like, you've ever just wondered that this happens when you want it to? You, you control this thing that you're in. It's amazing. I would, I would look at the oceans and the cheetahs and the mathematical finitude of, of the things that he's created and just, just blow your mind over and over. But Paul doesn't turn to those things. After all, if we're honest, for the omnipotent God, is any one thing harder than another? I mean, was it, well, couldn't we honestly say that it was harder for him to create a mosquito than for him to create the sun? Not if he's omnipotent. I mean, everything's equally easy for him, right? So when Paul looks for the best example of God's power, what he looks for is what is most revelatory of his power. What is it that really reveals the full greatness of his power? And he points to three events to teach us about the kind of power that we need to know. The first is the power that God used to raise Christ from the dead. Verse 20, starting in 19 a little bit. The working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power that we must experience is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a notable power. If you've experienced that power in your life, you can't miss it. It is a power that brings the reversal of death. And not just Jesus' death, but the reversal of death in our lives. The reversal of all of the loss that we experience in this world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ destroyed sin. And it destroys sin in our lives. This is why Paul says elsewhere that he wants to know not just Christ, but the power of his resurrection. And I would argue, so should we. So should we. Pray with Paul that we might know him and the power of his resurrection. The second powerful work that Paul mentions is the power of God that exalted Christ. Where he says at the end of 20, 
He seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's a pretty exhaustive list. The right hand in the heavenly places, above all rule and authority and power and dominion. I suspect that there are angelic authorities, hierarchical powers, high above us in the heavens, of which we have no idea. Powers in the heavens. No clue. But Christ is sitting exalted above them all. He's at the highest place. Over them all, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father because of his obedience in death and his glorious resurrection. The third point of reference for this power, this power that Paul wants us to have, this power that we must have, this knowledge that we must have, is the power that Christ exercises. Now, follow how this one is worded as well. You've got to love the way that word that Paul puts together his sentences. In verse 20, he says, He put all things under his, excuse me, 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The third point of reference for this power that we need to have is the power that God, that Jesus exercises over everything. And notice how he exercises his power over everything. It says to the church, for the church, for you, and for me. God placed all things under his feet for the church, which is his body. This means that all of God's sovereignty, all of his power, all of his might comes through Christ who is at the top of everything... And that Christ exercises all of that power for us. Let that sink in. I think the magnitude of it. Let it permeate. Let it penetrate. All of God's power for us. For the good of his people. Remember, we're talking about God's power that we need to know. How can we know God's power? How do you know power? How do you know that there's electricity in an electrical line if you don't have the fancy meters? you got to touch it. And then you know there's power. I don't recommend that. Don't try that at home. What we're talking about is laying hold of the power of God that he is exercising on our behalf. You can't be unmoved. If you're unmoved, then you're not part of God's people. If you're unmoved, you've never known his power. If you're not changed, then you don't know God. Or you have forgotten who it is that we are dealing with. All of God's sovereign power is exercised on behalf of the church. All of his purposes are for our good. All of his sovereign power is exercised on our behalf. All of his omniscient wisdom is leveraged for our greatest good. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 that all things are working together for our good. Everything, according to his mighty power, is for our good. Everything you experience in your day-to-day life, all of the things at work, all of the things on the ride to work, how your morning went, all of it is being leveraged for his people, for our good. How can we ever think that we can do better for ourselves than what God has determined to do for us. 
And we, we do it all the time, don't we? We're dissatisfied with what he gives. We're dissatisfied with what he provides. We think that if he would do something different, our lives would be better. Forgetting that all things are coming from his hand for our good, according to his omniscience. Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. And it's the Spirit of God that reveals these things to us. Are we wiser than he? What an incentive for us to pray all things according to his will. When Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he teach us to pray this way? He said, pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done. God's will. Because his will is for our good. Now as I advertised earlier, a word of warning. The glorious promises that we have discussed, promises that are a sure reality, the promises that we've discussed, the ones that are in verses 3 through 14, the promise of his power and of the knowledge of God that we receive by the Spirit, they are sure and guaranteed promises, but they are only for those who have faith. And not for people who just say they have faith, but for people whose faith is being worked out in love. That's why he qualifies the prayer. He says, because I've heard of your faith and your love, I'm praying these things for you. No faith, no love, no prayer. Do not think that God is your father just because you prayed a prayer some time ago. If you have no newness of life. If the things that I'm talking about to you are boring, dull, not interesting. If you have not known his power in your life, the power of resurrection then you don't know Jesus. Just because you're sitting here this morning doesn't mean you know Jesus. If you are not a member of God's people, then God's sovereignty is very bad news for you. It's very good news for his people. Very bad news for those that are not. How can you escape if you reject the king of everything? When we say that he is high and lifted up, if you reject the one that is high and lifted up, bad news. Do we think he's impressed by our lip service? Do we think he's impressed by platitudes? But it's not too late. If you have not put your faith in Christ, if you see no evidence of God's power in your life, Do not leave here today in danger of losing your soul. You can talk to me afterward. Talk to Milo afterward. Talk to Brian afterward. Turn to the person sitting next to you for goodness sake. Do not leave here in danger of your soul. Cast yourself today upon Jesus because he cares for you. He is ready to save. As the band comes up, let me close here with this statement. When we consider the majestic sweep of God's sovereignty as he describes it in the first half of the chapter, we may think that it is is beyond us, like we can't even begin to comprehend his sovereignty, and you're right, we can't. But when we start to dwell, and when we dwell upon what he has revealed, and we begin to realize that his sovereign power is matched equally by his sovereign love, We find that God's sovereignty is not an excuse for fatalism to say, oh, well, God's in charge of everything, so I don't have to do anything. It's not an excuse for sin, saying, well, God's 
doing everything so I can just do what I want. He's going to save me. Rather, God's sovereignty becomes an incentive and a strong incentive to worship and to pray according to his own plan and his own purposes because he is exercising all of his sovereign power for you and for me. This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians that they might know him and his power and it should be the prayer that we pray for ourselves so if you would join me in such a prayer heavenly father give us the spirit of knowledge and wisdom and revelation of our god we need to know you and the power of the resurrection of christ we need to know the hope to which you have called us we need to value the things of heaven more than the things of earth We need to know what is the riches of the glorious inheritance that we have in the saints. That we are your people and you are our God. And with such knowledge, motivate us to live in newness of life to the praise of your glorious grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.